Uh, good afternoon. I'm sure uh, every speaker tells you that uh, the topic he's about to speak is one of the most important topics in the Torah. Uh, and I won't be an exception to that rule, but I'll try to justify that assertion. Um, we're going to be dealing with uh, a passage that takes up about three and a half chapters of the Torah in Sefer Shmot, Parashat Peshalach and Parashat Yitro. Um, and it's the passage that actually links what are probably the two most significant events in the whole Torah. How do I know that they're the two most significant events? Because the Torah said so, at least the way the Ramban understood the Torah uh, it says so. The two events that are being linked are Kriyat Yam Suf, the splitting of the sea, and Mamad Ar Sinai, Revelation at Sinai. And how do I know that these are the two most important events in the Torah? Well, if I look at the last pasuk in the Torah, Ulechol Hayad Chazaka, Ulechol Hamora Gadol, Asher Asa Moshe Kol Yisrael. The Torah is summing up Moshe's entire career and explaining why Moshe is the greatest prophet who ever lived. And the Torah notes two things that for which Moshe, as a prophet, was responsible, the Yad HaChazakah and the Morah HaGadol. The Ramban tells us that the Yad HaChazakah is Kriyat Yam Suf, because after all, Vayar Yisrael Tayad HaGdolah Sharasar Shem B'Mitzrayim. Okay, it's called the Yad HaGdolah, but that's what, according to the Ramban, the Torah is alluding to at the end, the Yad HaChazakah, L'chol HaMorah HaGadol, the Morah HaGadol, the great awe, great, great fear, describes the uh, uh, ter- terrible, terrible in the se- sense of arousing terror events of the revelation at Sinai. So these are the two events that more than anything else sum up Moshe's career. Okay, and these in fact are the two great revelations, the two places where God revealed himself in the most awesome and, and, and the clearest way. And these two events, which are separated by the chapters we're about to study, okay, are, are the, uh, you know, the greatest achievements that the Torah wants to attribute to Moshe at the end. And so, what we're going to discuss today is what happened in between, in between these two events. And what, why, in fact, is there a transition between these two events and what are these chapters describing the transition trying to teach us? Um, now, it's worth noting that uh, since we're talking about the uh, greatness of the prophet Moshe in, in, these, in this last pasuk that we referred to, um, there's something about these two events besides the uh, awe-inspiring revelations uh, uh, that we talked about. Uh, there are certain other features about them that are very crucial. One of them has to do with Moshe himself. In both of these events, the Torah notes that these events increased the people's belief in Moshe as a leader. You have well-known pasuk, uh, Vayaminu Bashemu Moshe Avdo, Pasuk we recite every day in our prayers, referring to Kriyat Yam Suf, and also in the prelude, uh, prelude to the revelation at Sinai, Hashem says to Moshe that one of his goals is Vigambecha Ya'aminu Liolam. So these are the two events that more than anything else inspired the people to believe in Moshe's leadership and prophecy. Uh, one other point I'd like to uh, mention by way of introduction is that um, the whole unfolding of the history of Israel, uh, starting with the redemption from Egypt, is summed up in Shemot chapter 6 uh, with the five basic terms, the four, the Shonot HaGeulah, and there are actually five Lishonot Geulah, the Heveti, it's continued with Heveti, and that's really the uh, the whole uh, outline of the history of Israel. Okay, Votzeti, the Hitzalti, 
uh, is redeeming the people from bondage and from Egypt itself. Okay. And is a very is very clearly referring to Mahmad Har Sinai, and you can uh, uh, understand this by remembering the continuation of that pasuk in Shmot chapter six. Ani Hashem Elokechem Amotzi Etchem is directly echoed by Anochi Hashem Elokecha Asher Otzeiticha Meretz Mitzrayim Mibeit Avadim. When was Israel taken by God to be His nation at Mamad Har Sinai? V'yitem li segulam yikol ha'amim kili kol ha'aretz is part of the prelude to Mamad Har Sinai, and Mamad Har Sinai is when. Israel became God's people, v'lakachti. Okay, but before that you have v'gaalti. V'gaalti atchem b'zroa netuyah v'shvatim gedolim. And uh, arguably the point where this is accomplished is Kriyat Yamsuf. Okay, the time of the splitting of the sea. It's at that point that the people are informed. Okay, ki asher item et Mitzrayim hayom v'tosifu lirotam odad olam. You will never see Egypt the same way again. In other words, this is the last time you will look at them as uh, as those who held you in bondage. Okay, that that will never be your attitude towards the Egyptians again. That's what happens at Kriyat Yamsuf, and that's the Geula. The Geula means to be finally and irrevocably taken out of the bondage of Egypt and beginning to enter into the relationship with God. So Vagalti is. Beginning the entry into the relationship with God, the is cementing that relationship through the Sinaitic covenant. So Vagaalti and Vilakhti are really the um, the 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 two poles between which our stories are moving. We're moving from the Gaalti to Vilakhti. So there are really three things that link these two events. Okay, the two great revelations the two great affirmations of Moshe's leadership and prophecy, and the two crucial stages in the uh, relationship, uh, the developing relationship between Israel and God, the Gaalti and the Lakachti. Okay, so now, that's the, the, those are the parameters within, within which we're moving. Let's now uh, start to zero in on the stories themselves. Okay, these three and a half chapters that we'll be focusing on from the middle of chapter 15 through chapter uh, uh, through chapter 18. Uh, these chapters that we'll be that we'll be looking at um, are divided by our, our tradition into two: the end of Parshat B'Shalach, the opening of Parshat Yitro. Okay, that's our our traditional way of dividing them up, okay, and uh, in a way, it's really a, a very natural division because the uh, chapters in in B'Shalach, okay, uh, Tedzayin and uh, Tedvav Tedzayin and Yudzayin, okay, those chapters actually detail something that the Torah sums up elsewhere, okay, as being the ten nisyonot. Okay, not all of them are here, but uh, uh, after the Chetam Raglim, Hashem complains, Vayinasuoti Zeeser Pa'amim. Eser is probably a typological number, meaning a lot of times. Um, but uh, be, be that as it may, okay, the idea that the people try God, okay, that's the main theme of the end of B'Shalach. We have the trials, these are summed up for you in the chart uh, in, in source number one on your source sheets. And uh, we'll, we'll be referring back to this chart later on. But uh, you can uh, see just by glancing in the right-hand column of the chart that uh, we're dealing with four narratives that take place at the end of Parshat B'Shalach. Okay, the beginning of Parshat Yitro, Perak Yudchet, okay, is, is talking about the arrival of Yitro. Okay, we've moved on 
to a different topic. And, and we're really focusing on that particular individual, Yitro, and uh, uh, what he contributes to, uh, 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 to our story. Okay, so that's a very clear division. As, as we'll see, it's not just a, a division in terms of the uh, uh, in terms of the narrative. It's also a division in terms of the messages that the Torah is trying to teach uh, through these through these two narratives. Um, it's worth noting right from the outset. There's a point we'll be developing later on that even though these two parts of the story are different. Um, there is definitely a connection uh, between them. It's interesting that uh, Chazal already indicated the connection between these two, not only through specific Midrashim that we'll look at a bit further, but even in terms of the uh, division of the uh, Tanaitic Midrash on the book of Shmot, which interestingly does not follow our Parsha division. Okay, we divide Parshiot, Peshalach, and Yitro, as I mentioned earlier. But in the Mechilta, the Mechilta's division is between Masechta de Amalek, which includes the arrival of Yitro, and Masechta de Bachodesh, which talks about the revelation at Sinai. So already in the Mechilta, you have a sense that Chazal saw the stories of the trials at the end of Beshalach and the narratives surrounding the figure of Yitro to be interrelated. Okay, why it is that they're interrelated, uh, we'll, we'll see, we'll, we'll now detail. Okay, first of all, if you look at, at, at uh, source number three, okay, that's at the beginning of the third page of your source sheets, literary parallels between Amalek and Yitro narratives, okay, and and here the connection is specifically between the battle of Amalek and the figure of Yitro. And uh, I think you'll agree, without going into detail right now, that it's an impressive list of literary parallels. There are a lot of words that are that connect the two stories that are that are somewhat surprising. Now, for example, Milchama versus Shalom. Okay, the story of Amalek is a story of Milchama. The story of Yitro is a story of Shalom, which appears twice. Okay, in both cases you have choosing people for different tasks, choosing people to fight against Amalek, choosing people to serve as judges. In the case of Yitro, okay, you have the word Machar. Okay, that appears in both stories. You have Moshe sitting in both stories. Two very, very different contexts, apparently different meanings, but it's interesting to note that. And you have the word kaved in both. The heavy hands of Moshe, he had trouble uh, continuing to lift up in the battle of Amalek. And when Yitro says to Moshe, after he sat in judgment all day, ki kaved mimcha davar, It's too hard for you. So the word kaved links the two stories. Okay, Nitzav, Moshe stands at the top of the mountain in the Amalek story and the people stand over Moshe uh, to receive his judgment in the second story. And you have the idea of something that lasts all day. The battle of Amalek lasts Ad Boa Shemesh, okay, until the sun sets and you have Moshe sitting in judgment from morning until evening. So, uh, it's an impressive list of Literary parallels, uh, as I noted here, uh, uh, Kasuto in his commentary already noted these parallels, and it already indicates that it not just Chazal in the Midrash, but the Torah itself is interested in our somehow integrating these two narratives and seeing how they how they inter uh, how they interrelate. Uh, Rav Meidan, uh, as suggested in an article he wrote on on these parshiot, that there's also uh, another connection between the uh, uh, between the stories that uh, the uh, there's a um, an altar. The altar is explicitly mentioned in the first story of Amalek. Moshe builds an altar, calls it Hashem Nisi, and in the second story where Yitro arrives, uh, there's no altar mentioned, but there is a sacrifice. So Rav Medan said, "Well, on what what altar?" 
did Moshe sacrifice? That's a point we'll be coming back to later on. Um, and his answer is, he sacrificed on the altar that Moshe erected in the Battle of Amalek. So that, that's even a, uh, like a physical bond that links, that links the two stories. And it's also interesting to note that historically, Amalek and Yitro's descendants, the Keni, uh, are actually neighboring countries. And we find that, for example, in the Battle of Shaul, and Shaul fights his battle against Amalek, first he warns the Keni to distance themselves from the battlefield. He says, you're our friends, you're our allies, we don't want to, we, we have no quarrel with you, please get out of harm's way. So that means that the connection between Amalek and Yitro is not just a one-time thing in these chapters of Shmot, but something that continues into later history, uh, later history as well. Okay, and uh, having said all this by way of introduction, let's now start looking a little more closely at the uh, narratives, uh, narratives themselves. We're actually going to focus mostly on the Amalek and Yitro narratives, but in order to understand the Amalek narrative, we'll have to uh, look a little more closely at the backdrop. Okay, the backdrop, as I've said, is the trials, uh, the trials and tribulations of Israel's sojourn in the wilderness, or, or should, should we say, the beginning of Israel's sojourn in the wilderness. And when we call it the, uh, the trials, uh, you can see in the chart, uh, source number one, on the left-hand side of the chart, you can see that the word Linasot, Nun Samichhei, is a key word that runs through all of these stories in one form or other. Either that or some cognate word. As the word Nisahu in the first narrative, Anasenu in the second, Matenasun et Hashem, Masau Meriva, Val Nasotam et Hashem, appears three times in the third narrative. And in the Amalek narrative, you don't actually have the word Nisa, but you have a uh, a word that's uh, uh, composed of similar letters. Hashem, Nisi. Hashem is my banner. A banner and Nisayon, they're not the same word, but clearly uh, there, there's a, a word play that is intended to link the Amalek story with the, with the previous stories. So let's first see into which framework the uh, Amalek narrative is fitting. And, and we'll get a bit of a sense of um, uh, of what happens in these three trial narratives. Okay, and uh, the point of the chart is to help focus our discussion. We're not going to go through these stories in detail, but uh, but I would like to see the development that moves moves us from one to the other. Okay, so we're focusing now on three narratives. The first one about the uh, bitter waters in Mara, the second one about the man, okay, the manna, and the third, again, uh, relating to water, where Moshe hits the rock and water gushes forth in Rifidim. Okay, taking place respectively in places called Mara, Elim, and Rifidim. Okay, so if we look at the, at the chart, we can see that there's a progression that leads from one narrative to the other. Okay, the first starts with Moshe, uh, with the people people complaining to Moshe. The people complain to Moshe. Moshe's response is immediately to pray to God. God gives an immediate response. He shows him a tree. He throws the tree into the water. The water's uh, are sweetened, and the aftermath of the story is Sham Samlo Choku Mishpat Bisham Nisahu. Okay, there God uh, established for him, presumably for the people, Choku uh, Mishpat. Okay, uh, statutes and ordinances. Okay, what exactly these statutes and ordinances were is interesting. Chazal, of course, identifies certain mitzvot. Uh, Rav Meidan. Uh, the Ramban already and uh, followed later by Rav Meidan uh, have suggested I think quite cogently that uh, we're talking about laws that are specifically for their sojourn in the wilderness like uh, how to divide up water 
Okay, how to allocate water, how to allocate whatever resources uh, they have. These are the statutes and ordinances that uh, that we're talking about. But the use of choku mishpat, which are key words later in the Torah, is of course uh, significant. Here's where Israel is first exposed to uh, to laws, to divine laws. Okay, that's that's their uh, induction into that kind of service. They already had it, of course, in Egypt with the Paschal uh, offering, but uh, having entered the wilderness, this is their first experience of that. The word Nisahu here is a bit puzzling. Misham Nisahu. He tried him. Is this a throwback? In other words, that not having the water was a trial? You know, sort of like the the uh, fellow on the uh, on the train who's grumbling the whole way, oh, you're my thirsty, oh, you're my thirsty, and when he finally gets gets to the uh, the the next stops uh, his uh, neighbor runs and gives him water and he drinks and he says now I'll have a bit of peace and quiet and then as the train pulls out oi was I thirsty so visham nisahu oi was that a uh, a trial okay maybe that's the way to read it or um, what uh, what has been suggested by some contemporary scholars is that nisahu in this case means something like uh, the way we use it in contemporary Hebrew, experience. And here, God gave them an experience. In other words, He gave them the opportunity to experience both the trials of the wilderness and also the divine salvation from these trials. Here, God, uh, God uh, gave them a valuable learning experience. Okay, that, that's... Uh, a uh, suggestion that I think has has a lot of merit. Okay, in the, in the next cases it'll be a lot clearer that linasot means a trial. Okay, so that that's that's how the first story goes. Now, as we move into the second story, okay, as I say, we're not going to read every single pasuk of each story, but we'll just focus on some of the highlights that are mentioned here in the chart. Here, the people again complain, but the complaint is much more detailed and I think much more bitter. Okay, would that God had let us die in Egypt. We would have been better off dying in Egypt than being brought out to this place. Okay, so the complaint is certainly getting deeper, bitterer. Okay, the first time they just complained. This time the complaint is much more, much more pointed. Okay, um, and and uh, uh, Moshe's reaction to the complaint is Here Moshe doesn't just convey the complaint to God the way he did in the first case. Okay, the first case he just cries out to God and God sends salvation. Here the complaint is more bitter and Moshe's response is also uh, a bit more uh, testy. Okay, Moshe says Hey, don't complain to me. Okay, I'm not the boss here. If you have complaints, complaint department is upstairs. Okay, so God, God can receive, God can re- receive your complaints. Okay, so we're already sensing there's a bit more tension uh, in the air the second time around. Okay, now when we look at the divine response, so the divine response is also interestingly um, much more elaborate. God doesn't just solve the problem. God makes a whole ceremony out of it. In fact, a whole revelatory experience out of it. God says to Moshe, Okay, we have this kind of elevated poetic language, look what I'm about to do. And Moshe says to the people, prepare for the morning, because in the morning you're going to see something absolutely remarkable. Okay, so... um, uh, perhaps this is in response to the fact that the people's complaint is much more bitter. So it's not enough just to solve the problem. Okay, God feels that he has to also uh, give the people a kind of uplifting uh, experience, revelatory experience, and that's a necessary part, uh, that's a necessary part of the response. Later on, though, there's a continuation because the people don't obey all of God's directives about the man. Okay, he tells them, don't try to collect it after mid-morning, and some of them do. 
He tells them, don't go out on Shabbat, there won't be any there, that's why you got a double portion on Friday. And some of the people do. And then God gets angry. Okay? Uh, and, and God says, uh, if you look uh, at the bottom of the second column of the chart, or second column after the right-hand one, the middle column, how long will the people refuse to obey my commandments? So it's interesting. In the first story, they were first given commandments. Now, they're also given commandments and they disobey them. And God gets angry. But the anger doesn't seem to go anywhere. God seems to get over, uh, get over the anger. Okay? And... Uh, we'll move on to the third, the, the next column, the third column. Okay, the in the first in the first uh, trial, the there was a, a a kind of longer lasting result from the event, which is the Choku Mishpat, which will accompany the people for quite a while to come. In this case, there's also something that is supposed to last for all generations to take. Uh, an omer full of man and to place it in the sanctuary. Sanctuary doesn't exist yet, but this is looking forward to when there will be a sanctuary. Place it there so that it will be a memento for all generations. Okay, so this event is supposed to leave a uh, uh, a, a permanent uh, mark on the collective memory of Am Yisrael. Okay, so the trial may be greater, but also the uh, the commemoration of the event is also more substantial and, and longer lasting. Okay? Um, and here also the term Nisayon appears in a very interesting way. What is God trying them this time? The trial is, will they adhere to my commandments or not? Unfortunately, the answer seems to be not all of them and not all the time. Okay, but uh, nevertheless, that's part of the point of this event is for the people to be tried in, in the realm of accepting mitzvot. And I think we're beginning to get a sense of why these parashiot are, necess- are a necessary preparation after Kriyat Yamsuf, after experiencing the great redemptive hand of God uh, in splitting the sea uh, and in preparing them to receive the Torah. Okay, so having a kind of trial run, if you don't mind the pun, a dry run for receiving the Torah. Okay, Leman Anasenu. Move on to the third story. The story in Rafidim. And here we find a new term. They're no longer just complaining, but Vayarev Ha'amim Moshe. The people are quarreling. Okay, the complaint has morphed into a quarrel. Okay, Okay, and they said, give us waters that we can drink. Okay, you can hear, okay, the exasperation, the anger in their voice. Okay, this is now a full-fledged quarrel. And Moshe responds in kind. Matarivuni madi. Why are you quarreling with me? As he asked earlier, why are you complaining to me? Now he says, why are you quarreling with me? But instead of saying, direct the quarrel upstairs, the way he said the previous time, here he says, Tashem. Why are you trying God? And interestingly, the trial has switched places. Now it's not God who's trying the people, it's the people who are trying God. Okay? But that's a no-no. That's not something the Torah approves of at all. Okay, Moshe says, why are you doing this? This is not, not, not proper behavior. Okay, N- then Moshe cries out to God, reminiscent of the first case, but he cries out to God in a different way. In the first case, he just cried out to God and said, okay, please take care of the problem. This time he cries out to God and he says, what am I going to do with these people? Next thing you know, they're going to be stoning me. Okay, so Moshe is sort of at the end of his rope. You, you, you feel all the nerves are getting frayed here. Okay, the people, Moshe, maybe God also, 
Maybe his nerves are also getting a bit frayed by this point. Because now, how is this event commemorated? It's not commemorated by new laws. It's not commemorated by a memento of this miraculous, wonderful manna that appeared. It's commemorated by giving a name to the place. The name to the place is Masao Meriva. Masa is from the word Nisayon. They tried God. Meriva is from Vayarev. Matarivuni Madi, Tashem. That's the name of the place. What's commemorated here is the people overstepped the bounds. They went too far. Okay, this time, it's not just God who's trying them. Now they're trying God. And that's going too far. Okay? And that's how the word Nisayon appears in this case. And as we noted earlier, in this story it appears not once but three times. Okay? To talk about how the people have tried God. Okay, that's that's the backdrop. So by the time we're finished with this third story, I would say we're in a way maybe waiting for the other shoot to drop, right? The, the people's nerves are frayed. Moshe's nerves are frayed. God's nerves are frayed. And uh, something's got to give. Something's got to break. And, uh, and into this steps Amalek. Okay? Now, let's first of all see how Amalek relates to all these stories. You'll notice that in the first two columns of the chart, okay, we draw a blank. The people don't complain to Moshe. Okay? Moshe doesn't complain to God. Okay? But God does speak to Moshe, but only at the end of the story. Okay? He doesn't speak to God, uh, to Moshe before. He speaks to Moshe after, which in a way is very interesting. As Moshe is about to do something which uh, many Midrashim assume uh, he must have been commanded by God. I mean, how did Moshe know to go up the mountain and stick his hands up in the air? Okay? Where, where, where did that idea come from? Okay? So, several Midrashim assume it must have been that God commanded him to do that. Of course, the Torah doesn't say that. And I think it's very, um, it's very significant that the Torah doesn't say it. Now, without taking sides on whether Moshe thought of the idea on his own or whether God uh, told him to do it, the fact that Torah leaves it out is telling us something, and, and that something is, some, uh, is uh, a point that we'll come back to, uh, that we'll come back to in a bit. Okay, but well, let's first look at a couple of, of, uh, of interesting, interesting developments. Okay, the, we'll come back to the, to the earlier trials. The first two trials, Moshe stands among the people and he, he throws the, uh, the tree into the water. In the first case, in the second case, he gathers the people and congregates them and says, stand and watch and see this wonderful thing that God is about to do. The third time, something interesting happens. Moshe does not conduct the miracle before the people, but only before the elders. Okay? In Rafidim, okay, Moshe goes up onto a mountain, okay, and he takes the elders with him and he hits the rock and the water gushes forth before the eyes of the elders. Okay, now why not before the eyes of the whole people? Possibly precisely because of what we've noted earlier. God is not so happy with the people and he doesn't want to appear in their midst. He may be expressing his dissatisfaction by sort of distancing himself from the people. He says, you know what? They've got a valid gripe. They're thirsty. I'm going to provide them with water. I'm not going to leave them out here to die of thirst. I'm going to provide them, but... I'm going to do it in a way that expresses my dissatisfaction with them. And one way of doing that is to distance himself geographically from the people and say, I want somebody to witness the miracle, but not the whole people. They don't deserve it. So they'll have their representatives there, they'll report back, they'll all say, yes, it was a miracle, it was marvelous, but I don't want them all to see it, I don't want them all all to experience it. That, that, that could already be an instance of the divine dissatisfaction with the people, and the divine silence in this case of Amalek might might be playing a similar role. We're not told that God spoke because, again, 
God is in a way distancing himself from the people. And now we come to something else that's interesting. Where is Moshe? Moshe functions as a leader in the sense that he tells Yoshua, okay, go rustle up an army, go out to battle on a lake. But Moshe is not down in the battlefield with them. Instead, Moshe is up on a mountain raising his hands and it might be argued that Moshe also is seeking in a way to distance himself from the people. As Moshe in the previous story was also exasperated with the people and he's not the one to lead them into battle. Let somebody else lead them into battle. His, his lieutenant, Joshua, will lead them into battle. Okay, But Moshe is going to do something else. Again, he will provide for them and as, uh, as we see clearly, provides for them in a miraculous way, okay, in a heavenly way, but he does it from a distance. So we have a sense that as these stories are progressing, Moshe is in a way moving further away from the people. Further away from the people and perhaps, shall we say, elevated above the people. Okay? And here Moshe is quite literally elevated above the people. They're down there in the valley fighting the battle and he's up there on the mountain, okay, doing whatever it is that he's doing by raising his hands. Okay? And we're not going to get into that uh, thorny issue of what exactly that represents. But certainly it represents some kind of way of connecting heaven and earth. Okay? The mountain on which he's standing is somehow invoking God to help the people. God is up there, the people are down there, he's standing there in the middle and he's somehow forging a connection between the two of them. Okay, But he's not doing it from amongst the people, he's doing it from outside the people and above the people, which is continuing the development that we already saw in the first Rafidim story and it's interesting to note, where does Amalek come? In Rafidim. That's where, that's where Amalek comes. This very same place that was renamed Masal Muriva, that's the place where Amalek comes. And that is probably, uh, that is probably not an accident. And the Midrash picks up on this, uh, picks up on this idea. Okay, if, if you, uh, take a look at source 4, Dalid. Acherim omrim ein refidim ela refion yadayim. Refisharafu Yisrael yidehem midivrei Torah. Okay, notice an interesting midrash on the name. Refidim is divided into two words. Resh pei yudalid. Resh pei yudalid. Resh pei rafu became weak. Yadayim. The hands became weak. How did their hands become weak? They became weak from Torah. The people had distanced themselves from Torah. That's why Amalek came. Amalek came to Rafidim because Am Yisrael were spiritually weak. And it's interesting how this idea may be reflected in a very well-known pasuk from Parashat Zachor, the end of Parashat Kitetze, Tvarim, chapter 25, Zachor et asher asalecha Amalek, okay, the end of the chapter, Asher karcha baderech vayizanev b'cha kol anechashalim acharecha v'atayef v'yagea v'lo yorei elokim. Okay, the whole beginning of the Pasuk is describing what Amalek did. Okay, he encountered you along the way. Okay, he sniped out all the stragglers, the weak stragglers uh, in your rear. And you were tired, uh, tired and thirsty. Ayef here probably means thirsty. Who's not Yarei Elokim? From Pasuk, it sounds like Israel was not Yarei Elokim. Most Mefarshim assume that Lo Yarei Elokim means Amalek. Amalek didn't fear God. But there are Midrashim and some commentators who follow them who pick up on the what seems to be the simple reading of the Pasuk. Israel was not Yarei Elokim and this is 
what I would consider to be an example of a deliberate ambiguity on the Torah's part. The Torah probably means as its primary meaning, Amalek was not Yerei Elohim. Because the whole passage is talking about how terrible Amalek was. And one of the terrible things was Lo Yerei Elohim. Yerat Elohim in many places in the Torah uh, means not to have pity on the weak. Okay, you see that, uh, for example, in the case of the Mialdot, where they did, okay, to have pity on the weak. Okay? And that's why they did not obey Paro's command. And there's several other places where it seems to have that meaning. And uh, that would fit in very well with applying this to Amalek. Okay, but the Torah's purposeful ambiguity is indicating, yes, Amalek was not Yare Elohim, but maybe you weren't so much better. You weren't Yarei Elohim either. Look, look what happened in Rafidim just before Amalek came. Rafu Yidehem Minat Torah. Okay, it's your spiritual weakness that invited, that invited Amalek. In the well-known Midrash cited by Rashi, it's, uh, it originates in the Psikta de Rav Kahana of, for, for Parshat Zachor. Um, the, the, they give the, uh, the parable of, uh, of a father is carrying his son on his shoulders and he's carrying him through thick and thin and confronting all kinds of challenges and protecting the son from all of them. And after uh, one, one particularly brave adventure, the son turns to uh, somebody in and says, have you seen my father anywhere? Okay, so the father says, ah, you don't know where I am. I'm going to bring a dog upon you. And uh, Amalek, of course, is the dog. Okay? Let the dog bite you. Okay? In other words, uh, and, and this, I think, is also uh, indicated by another Midrash. If you look at source, for Gimel, Yavoam Acherim Omrim, Yavoam Amalek Fui Tova, Viparamin Haam Fuye Tova. What? Mark's Amalek is that he is ingratitude. Amalek cannot appreciate his blessings, and Amalek therefore is the appropriate punishment for a people who are Kfuyetova. God has been providing for them this whole time in the wilderness, okay, provided them with water, provided them with provided them with food. Okay, and the people say, Hayesh Hashem Bikirbainuimayim is God in our midst. Okay, so God's answer is, well, yes and no. I'm partly in your midst, I'm taking care of you, but let me do it from a distance for a while, because you don't really know how to appreciate what it means for me to be in your midst. And Amalek is a kind of wake up call. Okay, by bringing Amalek upon them, Amalek who represents for the Midrash ingratitude, by bringing Amalek upon them, it's a signal to Israel, it's time you started be, being more grateful for what God, and I might add, for, uh, for what Moshe, have been doing for you. Okay, so that, that's, uh, um, those are some of the uh, important points about the story of Amalek. Um, let me note another uh, couple of points about, about this story. Okay, at the end of the story of Amalek, I would say Moshe's stature as a leader is probably at, a, at its uh, highest register uh, since he began his career. After all, he was the one who determined the fate of the battle. Everyone saw that when Moshe's hands were up, they were successful. When they were down, they were unsuccessful. So the people, <coughs> uh, people are certainly aware that Moshe is a very great and powerful leader. But at the same time, the story teaches us something else. Okay, there's this puzzling story about Moshe's hands became heavy, and when he put them down, they started to lose, and then he needed two people to prop up his hands so that they could emerge victorious in the battle. Okay, what's the point of that story? I would suggest that the point of the story is that precisely at the point where Moshe seems to reach a point of possessing nearly supernatural powers, that's the pr- precisely the point where the Torah feels the need 
to emphasize his humanity. Yes, Moshe is a great leader. Moshe's hands, when they're lifted, will determine the fate of the battle. But Moshe, since he's only a human being, can't lift his hands all day. Okay, this is uh, one of the uh, favorite punishments in Tironut, okay, if, uh, for infractions, is hold your rifle aloft for whatever. Okay, and uh, not easy. Okay, so Moshe is only a human being, as great as he might be. Okay, he's only a human being. And therefore, Moshe needs help. Okay, and as we already noted, this is a theme that's going to be echoed in one of the ensuing narratives regarding regarding Yitro. Okay, let, let's now turn to the uh, let's now turn to the Yitro story. Okay, in the um, in the Yitro story, the first question that uh, all the commentators discuss at uh, at great length is. Uh, uh, whether the Torah is written here in chronological order. Did Yitro, in fact, come after Amalek? Rashi assumes that yes. Okay? Rashi, if you look at, uh, at the source uh, number two, two Aleph. Okay? The second page. Vaishma Yitro, what did Yitro hear? He heard about the splitting of the sea and about the battle of Amalek. Sarashi is clearly assuming that the stories are written in chronological order. The one who not surprisingly challenges this assumption is the Ibn Ezra. Why not surprisingly? The Ibn Ezra is the one who takes to its furthest possible reach the maxim of Chazal that Ein Torah. The Torah is not written in chronological order. Okay? The one who opposes him most extremely, and we'll see his view in this story in a bit, is the Ramban. Ramban assumes that Chazal meant in exceptional circumstances the Torah is not written in chronological order, but as a general rule it is written in chronological order, and there are very, very definite conditions that have to be met before the Ramban will agree that a particular passage is written out of order. The Ibn Ezra is the one who uses this principle freely, and whenever he has any kind of problem reading the text chronologically, he says, you know what? It's not chronological. Okay, a key word he'll use in many places is uchvar. Okay, which is a way of saying the next pasuk is actually before the previous one. Okay, and chronologically it preceded the pasuk that was written just before it. Uchvar. Okay, in other words, read this next pasuk as a past perfect, not as a not as, it, not as an imperfect. Uh, so the Ibn Ezra claims, we're not going to read him in detail, uh, he's brought in source Tubet for the ones who want to read him, the Ramban in Tugimel, okay, but, but the Ibn Ezra brings several arguments uh, to, to, to try to establish his understanding that Yitro, in fact, came before the battle, uh, excuse me, did not come at this juncture, but actually came considerably later. Okay, his, his first point, okay, which he considers to be the main, uh, his main argument is, if, if we look at, uh, at uh, the beginning of Parashat Yitro, Parak Yudchet, Pasuk hey, Vayavo Yitro Choten Moshe Uvanav Yishtol Moshe, El Hamidbar Asherhu Chonesham Har Ha'elokim. He comes to the wilderness where they are encamped, okay, the mountain of God. The mountain of God is the mountain of Sinai. Well, when did Israel reach Sinai? Chapter 19. We're in chapter 18 now. In chapter 19, the first pasuk of chapter 19, They arrived in Sinai at the beginning of chapter 19, and very shortly afterwards you had the revelation at Sinai. Okay? So, Yitro had to come, says the Ibn Ezra, when the people are already at Sinai, which means after chapter 19. Okay? Number two, he says, uh, well, Yitro brought sacrifices. There must have been an altar. Who built an altar? Okay? Ibn Ezra, not having read Rav Meidan, didn't think of Hashem Nisi as being the altar 
on, on which he sacrificed. Okay, and uh, he assumed that it must be the altar that was built at Mount Sinai. Okay, in chapter 24 perhaps, or even the altar later on in, in, uh, uh, in the Mishkan. Okay, but uh, uh, it has to be somewhere around then. Number three, says the Ibn Ezra, um, uh, Moshe explains to Yitro, why are the people standing over me? They're coming to ask me to teach them Chukei Elohim V'Torotav. Well, there must be Chukei Elohim V'Torotav. There must be a Torah. Okay, so it has to be after the giving of the Torah. And finally, he argues that if you look, if we fast forward to the book of Bamidbar, and then uh, we'll find in Bamidbar, the end of chapter 10, that Chovav, who is presumably Yitro, okay, uh, is still with the people, and he uh, departs only when the people are about to depart from Mount Sinai. But at the end of chapter 18, it says, Vayishalach Moshe Chotno Lo So chapter 18 ends with Yitro going back home, but all of a sudden, in Bamidbar chapter 10, he's back again. So, how did that happen? So, the Ibn Ezra connects all the dots and says, this passage is presumably written out of chronological order. Ramban, uh, um, in accordance with his general approach, the Torah is written in chronological order, maintains the chronological order here as well, but uh, he does agree the Ibn Ezra has some weighty arguments, but he does try to confront them. Okay, and he also offers an argument of his own against the Ibn Ezra. He says, had uh, Yitro arrived after the giving of the Torah, then why is it that when Yitro arrives, all he can talk about is the splitting of the sea? Okay, he hears about everything God has done for his people. And if we look at, uh, uh, we look at Pasuk Chet, uh, so he tells him about what God did to Egypt and how he supported them in the wilderness and saved them from all of their tribulations. And Yitro was joyful about all the good that God had done for Israel and that he had saved, them, saved Israel from Egypt. Okay, and he says, Baruch Hashem who saved you from Egypt and Pharaoh. Now I know that God is greater than any other God, because of that matter which they had intended to do to them. Okay, that's how the Hebrew reads. And a likely understanding of what this is saying is, the Egyptians were punished exactly through the medium by which they had tormented the Israelites. They started off by throwing the the infant boys into the Nile and the story ends with their being drowned in in, in, in the sea, in Yamsuf. Okay, so you see the Midah connected Midah, the measure for measure and, and this really impresses Yitro. God is not only a mighty God but a just God. Okay, coming back to the Ramban, the Ramban says, well, if Yitro had appeared after the revelation at Sinai, shouldn't that be part of what he heard? Shouldn't that be part of what he comments on? Shouldn't that be part of what he rejoices about? But it isn't. Okay, and therefore the Ramban says, it's, it's implausible to me that Yitro in fact came after Mamara Sinai and then he tries to respond to all of the Ibn Ezra's arguments. Okay, he says, the altar doesn't bother me. You can build an altar, or maybe as Rav Maidan said, Hashem Nisi was the altar which he used. That's a crucial point. The Ramban says, who says there were no before the revelation at Sinai? After all, we saw Chokum Ishpad already at Marah. And so, yes, 
Moshe is teaching them new laws that are given by God ad hoc. People come to be judged, Moshe comes to God, and comes back with a new ad hoc law that God revealed to him. Okay? That's actually, in a way, quite fitting, and in a way, and, and this is one of the reasons why this discussion between the Ibn Ezra and the Ramban uh, it seems to me to be very important, not just in terms of the detail of when did Yitro come, but in terms of understanding uh, the messages at which the Torah is driving. Part of the point is, the people are hungering and thirsting for the Word of God before God reveals Himself to them at Sinai. That's part of the point of this story. Okay, When the people are coming to Moshe, they want to hear God's Word. So when God in the next chapter is going to reveal the Torah, He's responding to a felt need on the part of the people. It's not just God wants to give them a Torah. The people want to receive a Torah, even before God offers it, uh, God offers it to them. That's true according to the Ramban. It's, uh, the point is, is less valid if you follow the Ibn Ezra. <coughs> okay, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of the Har Ha'elokim, so here we have an interesting question. Who in fact is located at Har Ha'elokim at the point when Yitro arrives? The Ibn Ezra assumes the people. But maybe it's not the people. Maybe it's Moshe. Remember how Moshe distanced himself from the camp during the battle of Rephidim? He distanced himself from them when he drew water from the rock in Rephidim. He distanced himself from them in the battle against Amalek in Rephidim. And maybe Moshe went to Har Ha'elokim before the people actually arrived then. And uh, how far away is Rafidim from Mount Sinai anyway? Maybe not that far. Okay, we don't know exactly, but it's uh, arguable that it's not a great distance. And so, Yitro met Moshe at Har Elohim, which is very significant, but the people weren't there yet. So that's not necessarily an argument. In terms of uh, Yitro being back on stage in the book of Bamidbar, so aside from a very thorny question whether Chovav and Yitro are the same person, which we won't go into, but uh, as the Ramban points out, how far away is Midian from Mount Sinai? Not very far. Remember when Moshe was living with his father-in-law, he was shepherding his sheep at Mount Sinai. It's not that far. Okay, so, uh, you know, uh, grandfather might want to uh, travel that distance to see his grandchildren before they go on Aliyah. Okay, so uh, that's that's not such a problem. Okay, so uh, I think I think we can I think we can uh, uh, maintain I think we we can maintain the the chronological order as the as the Ramban suggests. Now, what are the stories of Yitro trying to teach us? Okay, what what are the messages? The stories of Yitro basically. Uh, divide into two parts. Okay, the first part is the meeting. We read part of that about the rejoicing of Yitro. It concludes, of course, with Yitro then coming to celebrate, to offer a, a Thanksgiving sacrifice before God and to have a uh, festive meal together with Moshe, Aharon, and Zikne Israel before God. That's the first story. So the first story is all about Yitro's arrival and his reaction to the divine redemption. The second story is about uh, about uh, Yitro's advice, ultimately accepted, uh, about setting up a judiciary system to help Moshe to deal with all these cases. You know, down to the present day, they say Israel has the lo- largest percentage per capita of uh, lawyers. Okay, so... Just imagine if they only had one lawyer uh, who had to adjudicate all the cases. That's what Yutro says. And so the answer is, let's get ourselves uh, 40,000 lawyers okay, uh, to, uh, to help out. It's actually more than 40,000 if you do the math. Yeah. Okay, you know, the same way Yitro can come back and forth between Midian and Harsinai, Harsinai is not that far from Rafidim, so he's still in Rafidim when Yitro meets him. 
Okay, but then he goes back to sit among the people in order in order to judge them. Okay, uh, but I think your I think your question is uh, is interesting in the sense that maybe it indicates that there's some kind of reconciliation taking place. If Moshe has distanced himself from the people to some extent, maybe after the battle of Amalek, maybe there's something of a reconciliation. And it's it's interesting to note at the end of the Amalek story, although God has been silent through the whole story, God at the end of the battle sort of takes credit for it and takes responsibility for it. He says, Milchamal Hashem Bamalek, Midor Dor. He says, From now on your battle is my battle. So it does seem at the end of Amalek there's a kind of reconciliation. Now, Amalek may have achieved its educational goals. And, and uh, the message might be that in a paradoxical way, as long as God is providing for the people, they don't appreciate it. When the people have to go out and fight for themselves, and then they get divine assistance from above. You know, they see only when God is helping us are we, are we actually succeeding, then they start to appreciate it more. You know, sort of like, when do children begin to appreciate what they got from their parents? When they become parents, right? So, you know, they, uh, when you take responsibility for something, then you have more appreciation for what it is that you're receiving. And I think there is a sense as we move into Yitro that that's happening. But the interesting thing is, okay, the second part of the story, we already talked about how it prepares us for the revelation at Sinai. Okay? Chukei Elohim Betarotav. And, not only have the people already begun to receive them, but based on Yitro's advice, they've already set up a judicial system so that when they get a larger and more elaborate Torah, they'll be able to deal with it better because they have a judiciary standing alongside Moshe to help them, tell them, deal with all those cases. How does the first story prepare them for Mahmad Har Sinai? Okay, what is the first story about? The first story is basically about Yitro being the first person in the Torah to celebrate the redemption from Egypt. To bless Baruch Hashem Asher Yitzhil Yad Mitzrayim. He blesses God for it. He sings a song of praise. He brings a sacrifice. The Midrash picks up on this point. If you look at source 4, um, source 5, excuse me. Source 5. Vayomer Yitro Baruch Hashem, Amar Rabbi Papayis, Bignut Yisrael HaKatuv Medaber, Sharei Sham Shishim Ribo Bene Adam, Lo Amar Echad Mehem Levarech Lamakom, Ad Sheba Yitro Verach Lamakom. Okay, it's actually a critique of Israel, criticism of Israel. They did not bless God for delivering them from Egypt. The first one to bless God. For, uh, words, I, what? Shirat Hayam is for the specific event of the splitting of the sea. But for saving them from Egypt, for the, for the Makot, okay, Yitro, Yitro is the, Yitro is the first one. That, that's what the Midrash claims. And I would, uh, I would suggest that that's part of the point of, of the Midrash. Remember, the Bishalach ended with a sense that Israel is kfui tova, is ungrateful. And, and Amalek okay, is their punishment for ingratitude because Amalek represents lack of gratitude. And Yitro is the antithesis. Yitro and Amalek are the two antitheses. If Amalek represents ingratitude, then Yitro represents gratitude. And gratitude is also a crucial part of receiving the Torah. When Israel received the Torah, how does the Torah begin? Anochi Hashem Elokecha, Asher Hotzeiticha Me'eretz Mitzrayim Mi'beit Avadim. The people who have experienced redemption, these are the people who can receive the Torah. If the people know how to appreciate the redemption, to be grateful for their redemption, then they're prepared to receive the Torah. If they're not capable of that grateful recognition of the divine providence, then they're not really capable of receive, of receiving the Torah. And so if 
the end of Bishalach is talking about how Israel was initially ungrateful, concludes with the story of an outside force. In order to sort of give the people a wake-up call, a jolt, you need an outside force, not thirst or hunger. That's all internal. That's all just the circumstances in which you find yourself. You need an enemy. You need an outside enemy to come and that galvanizes the people. And the people also, in confronting it, use some of their own resources. They set up an army. They fight. They begin to understand what it means to take responsibility and they begin at the same time to appreciate the divine care and providence from which they're, be, from which they're benefiting. That's what Amalek teaches them, concluding the round of trials in Beshalach. Yitro opens by taking the next stage, or the next two stages, in preparing the people for the revelation at Sinai. They've begun to appreciate, they've begun to be grateful. Yitro, first of all, teaches them a new way of expressing gratitude. Baruch Hashem. Asher miyad miyad paro. That's not a phrase that anybody has used before, Baruch Hashem. Okay, this immediate... No, in, in, in the book of Shmot, in connection with the Exodus from Egypt. Right? Baruch Hashem. Again, it's somebody from the outside who is supposed to open their eyes to learn how to express their gratitude in better, more meaningful ways. And it is, it's also the outside force, this outside, uh, factor, Yitro, who teaches them the value of human wisdom in setting up a social system that will enable them to receive the Torah. Okay? Only when the society has begun to organize itself, first in battle against Amalek, and then in setting up the judiciary in, in Yitro, only then are they fully prepared to receive the Torah. And both of these were dependent upon two outside nations. The nation that denies God, rebels against God, represents lack of gratitude, that's Amalek. And finally, to conclude the, uh, uh, to conclude the series of stories, Yitro, who represents the person from outside who more than the Israelites themselves knows how to appreciate what tremendous divine gifts have been bestowed upon them, and knows also how to teach them to set themselves up using the canons of human wisdom so that they will be fully prepared for the next step, which is the uh, terrifying and awesome divine revelation in which the Torah will be revealed. Thank you very much.